Our life is an apprenticeship to the truth, that around every circle another can be drawn, that there is no end in nature, but every end is a beginning, that there is always another dawn risen on mid-noon, and under every deep a lower deep opens. These are the words of American philosopher and poet Ralph Waldo Emerson. Whether we are examining our own lives as individuals or human history as a whole, we bear witness to numerous examples of our influence and our perceptions expanding as we explore the world and the universe around us. And with each new frontier we cross, we discover new truths about ourselves. But we seldom make these perilous and fantastic journeys alone. We are spurred along by enemies, rivals, and competitors. And whatever victories we win, both great and small, they are rarely ours alone. We go on this journey together, aided by family members, co-workers, temporary alliances, friendships of convenience, and occasionally, bonds with our fellow human beings that last a lifetime. Fifty years, half a century ago this month, the world watched just such a journey unfold. This is a historical anecdote about three men on a voyage through the cosmos to set foot on an alien world. But they didn't go on that journey alone. Hundreds of thousands of dedicated scientists and engineers worked to make the impossible possible. And when those men came upon their destination, an entire audience of the human species was watching, waiting anxiously to see history transpire in real time. To those watching in 1969, if successful, the journey of Apollo 11 would represent the culmination of a race between two nuclear-armed superpowers who were competing for more than merely territory on Earth, but for cosmic supremacy, conquest of an alien world, and immortality in the annals of history. Welcome to Universe University. I'm your host, Chris Grant. We've already covered the space race as a whole in previous podcast series, but this month, for the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11's mission to the moon, we invite you to get to know the men themselves who went on the journey, and to take a closer look at the most paradigm-shifting mission of the space age. Indeed, perhaps the most paradigm-shifting moment in the history of our species itself, to understand what it meant and how it expanded our perception. To accompany three men on an eight-day trip to an alien world and back home again, and to join two of those men in placing their boots in the soil of that world and bearing witness to sights that human eyes had never beheld. Today, we hope you'll come along on humanity's first voyage to land on the moon. Ironically, the United States likely never would have made a pledge to land a man on the moon, let alone accomplish such a task, if not for a brilliant Soviet engineer, Sergei Pavlovich Korolyov. After a false accusation from one of his colleagues in the 1930s, Korolyov was imprisoned in a gulag and used for slave labor. But with the advent of World War II and the deadly Nazi V-2 rocket, 
His technical expertise was needed yet again by his own government, and he was brought out of captivity. One colleague described Korolyov in the following words, quote, Korolyov was a great man. You'd think his time in prison would have broken his spirit, but when I first met him in Germany, when we were investigating the V-2 weapons, he was a king, a strong-willed, purposeful person who knew exactly what he wanted. He shouted and swore at you, but he never insulted you. And he would always listen to what you had to say. The truth is, everybody loved him. Korolyov built the world's first intercontinental ballistic missile, a rocket powerful enough to launch nuclear weapons to the United States, or payloads into outer space. The latter goal he advocated for strongly. With the Soviet's launch of the world's first artificial satellite in 1957, the arrival of the Space Age came about like a shot heard round the world, a Pearl Harbor in outer space, according to one commentator, and it led to a political panic in the United States. To add insult to injury, just a few weeks after Sputnik, the Soviets launched a second satellite carrying a stray dog, alive in a pressurized sphere. They couldn't return the dog to Earth, but it was proof that Soviet human missions would almost certainly follow. By 1959, Korolyov had sent the first robotic probe to reach the moon. And something else happened that year. A revolution in Cuba turned the Caribbean island into a communist state and a Soviet military ally. It was just 90 miles from American soil. But perhaps the worst international humiliation for the United States came in 1961 with the announcement that Soviet citizen Yuri Gagarin had become the first human being in history to visit outer space, orbiting the Earth just once before returning 90 minutes later. A few days after that, America's CIA attempted to invade Cuba and overthrow its communist government. They failed. Not only that, but in Germany, Soviet troops had begun tearing up roads connecting Soviet-controlled East Berlin from West Berlin to make them impassable to most automobiles. Barbed wire set up a perimeter, followed by a large wall constructed shortly thereafter. The Soviet government claimed that the wall was to prevent a Western invasion, but its real purpose was far more sinister. Between 1950 and 1960, some two million people in Germany had fled from the totalitarian Soviet Union seeking a new life in Western Europe the Soviet Union was losing doctors, lawyers, scientists, and engineers, the most vital citizens in any industrial, modern nation. They couldn't be allowed to escape, for they would desperately be needed in the new space age. Weeks later, the Soviet Union tested a 50-megaton nuclear weapon, 3,000 times greater than the atomic bomb America dropped on Hiroshima during World War II equal to 50 million tons of TNT. To this day, it is the largest nuclear weapon ever detonated by any nation in human history. Vice President Lyndon Johnson had once predicted that the Soviets would drop nukes from space. In his words, 
It would be like teenagers dropping rocks on cars from a highway overpass. There were some who were now predicting America's inevitable and imminent decline as a superpower. In 1960, government officials from the Soviet Union had gone on a publicity tour, showing off a robotic space probe from their Luna program. While it was initially believed to be a model, America's CIA quickly realized that the traveling exhibition had brought along an actual spacecraft. In the dead of night, American CIA agents broke into the truck carrying the precious cargo, extracted it from its crate, took it apart, snapped several photographs of it, then carefully reassembled it in the hopes that Soviet engineers would be none the wiser. It gave American intelligence operatives a wealth of knowledge about Soviet space capabilities, as well as the power of their rockets. If they could send robots to the moon, it would only be a matter of time before they sent humans. One thing was certain. The Soviet Union was likely many years ahead of the United States in rocket and space technology. The young President Kennedy had been publicly criticized as weak and impotent in the face of communist aggression and technological supremacy. He had to do something in response to the ongoing international embarrassment his nation was facing. Consulting with the newly formed NASA, advisors said that a manned moon landing might just be possible. American rocket scientist Robert H. Goddard had calculated in 1920 that a trip to the moon using a large liquid-fueled rocket was theoretically possible. A Kennedy administration memo suggested that while neither the United States or the Soviet Union had the technology to accomplish such a landing, a strong national effort to develop such technology could maybe, just maybe, make it a reality by 1967. In May of 1961, American astronaut Alan Shepard skimmed the edge of space in a 15-minute suborbital flight. As the first American in space, he hadn't even completed a single orbit around the Earth. But it granted America a meager and much-needed victory in the space race. With this modest accomplishment and a little bit of charisma, President Kennedy attempted to pitch a moon landing to the American people. A 240,000-mile journey of more than a week in outer space to land a human being on an alien world and return him to Earth before the decade was out. And all this when no American had yet orbited the Earth. Speaking to Rice University in Texas, this is what President Kennedy said about his shockingly ambitious proposal. There is no strife, no prejudice, no national conflict in outer space as yet. Its hazards are hostile to us all. Its conquest deserves the best of all mankind. And its opportunity for peaceful cooperation may never come again. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal, 
will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills, because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. Many years ago, the great British explorer George Mallory, who was to die on Mount Everest, was asked why did he want to climb it. He said because it is there. Well, space is there. And we're going to climb it. And the moon and the planets are there. And new hopes for knowledge and peace are there. And therefore, as we set sail, we ask God's blessing on the most hazardous and dangerous and greatest adventure on which man has ever embarked. Thank you. No Soviet leaders publicly responded to or even acknowledged President Kennedy's declaration. But the events that would follow didn't give Western leaders any confidence that the United States could catch up with, let alone overtake its arch-rival. In private, President Kennedy began to feel far more pessimistic about the immense commitment that he had made. NASA Administrator James Webb admitted that a moon landing might not happen by 1967, but more likely by late 1968. If President Kennedy served a second four-year term in office, he would likely be out of office by the time his pledge was fulfilled. President Kennedy offered to increase NASA's budget by hundreds of millions of dollars, if it could make a manned moon landing happen ahead of schedule. Webb somberly admitted that more money could not change the timetable. President Kennedy had come from a wealthy family, and he was now the most powerful man in the free world. Now, he had to contend with the fact that all the money on Earth could not buy the United States a moon landing by 1967. President Kennedy was assassinated in 1963. He would never live to see whether his pledge would become a reality. In 1966, the Soviet Union became the first nation in history to achieve a soft landing on the moon, albeit with a robotic space probe. Khrushchev privately told Soviet rocket engineers, quote, Don't leave the moon to the Americans. Communist Party officials were also pushing for a moon landing by 1967. It would be the 50th anniversary of the Russian Revolution. To save on weight, the Soviets had built a tiny, cramped, one-man lunar lander called the LK, which had seen two unmanned test flights in outer space in orbit around the Earth. America's lunar landing plan called for a two-person lunar lander that would be docked with a separate spacecraft. The two craft would undock in orbit around the moon. Two men would land on the surface while one man remained in orbit. Then the two craft would link back up after the landing. The plan was the brainchild of an obscure engineer named Hobolt, and it was called Lunar Orbit Rendezvous. The Soviet plan was far simpler and didn't involve docking. One cosmonaut would climb out of his two-man spacecraft and spacewalk to the LK lander, climb inside of it, land on the moon solo, take off from the moon using the same engine used to land, rendezvous beside the other cosmonaut, and with his last ounces of strength, conduct a spacewalk to climb back to the other nearby vehicle in lunar orbit, where the second cosmonaut would be waiting to take him home. 
but to launch a manned mission to land on the moon, the Soviets would need a rocket, larger than anything that had been built before. The United States was already working on the ambitious Saturn V, with help from former Nazi rocket scientist, the brilliant Werner von Braun. If completed, the mighty American rocket would use a reliable, open-cycle system, with five massive engines in the first stage alone. But since the Soviets lacked the generous levels of funding and lavish engine testing facilities that the United States had, Korolyov knew he would have to innovate. One of his top rocket engine designers refused to collaborate with him. The rocket engineer hated Korolyov and said that Korolyov acted like an autocratic dictator. So Korolyov had to rely on a jet engine designer named Kuznetsov to build his rocket engines from scratch. And Kuznetsov had never designed a rocket engine before. Ultimately, Korolyov's mighty N-1 rocket would use not five engines, but a whopping 30 engines clustered in its first stage alone, giving it even more power than America's Saturn V. And he made the controversial decision to use a more complicated system of plumbing and piping for the rocket fuel. The engines would rely on a closed-cycle system. It would be a dangerous gamble, but if it worked, it could drastically increase the efficiency and power of the rocket. But just as progress was being made on the N-1, Korolyov died during a routine surgical procedure, leaving his underlings to carry out the daunting technological undertaking as best they could. In early 1967, America's space program suffered a tragic setback. During a routine test on the launch pad, all three Apollo 1 astronauts perished when a fire sparked inside their capsule. Everyone knew that astronauts risked death in space travel. No one predicted that the technology was so new, so dangerous, so complex, that a mere training exercise could prove fatal. As the United States mourned the deaths of their astronauts, there were some in Congress who questioned whether the program was even worth it, whether it should be abandoned altogether. That same year, the Soviet Union was continuing to push the boundaries of human spaceflight, gambling with their cosmonauts' lives. That spring, their luck ran out. Cosmonaut Vladimir Komarov's spacecraft re-entered the Earth's atmosphere and came crashing to the ground at hundreds of miles per hour when his parachutes failed to deploy. The original 1967 goal of landing a man on the moon, which had seemed so plausible to both nations just a few short years ago, came and went. Spaceflight was a dangerous and volatile undertaking, and now the only two superpowers that had attempted it had sacrificed human lives in the process. It wasn't altogether clear whether anyone would land on the moon by the end of the decade, let alone which side might accomplish such a feat. The race to the moon in the 1960s was a competition between nations for political prowess with amazing opportunities for both science and human exploration itself. At the center of this race were a handful of brave men, willing to risk everything to be the first to set foot on a distant frontier where no human being had ever treaded before. Remarkably, the story of the space race, and in particular the voyage of Apollo 11 half a century ago, 
bears a striking similarity to another historic event in human history, which took place half a century before the space race. It was a race to the last unexplored frontier on the face of the Earth, the South Pole. And much like the space race, it took place in such an inhospitable environment that by the time it was all over, lives would be sacrificed in the process. To understand how Apollo 11's historic voyage of discovery transpired, as well as how future explorations to other frontiers of outer space will transpire one day, this historical analogy could be crucial. The Earth's South Pole, on the remote continent of Antarctica, resembles the surface of another planet more than any other region on Earth. It's nearly as barren as the Moon, and perhaps more importantly, the history of its exploration may be the ultimate example of Emerson's declaration that around every circle, another can be drawn, that there is no end in nature, and under every deep, a lower deep opens. It is indeed strange to think that just a few centuries ago, there was an entire continent on the earth hidden from human civilization. There had been much speculation about the existence of a mysterious southern continent on the bottom of the world, but for a long time there was no proof. Terra Australis Incognita was what it was called. In the 1500s, a Portuguese explorer named Magellan sailed to the southern tip of South America and sighted a long chain of islands. The indigenous population appeared to be burning fires on the shore. So Magellan named it Tierra del Fuego, the land of fire. Was this the edge of the mythical southern continent? Past the cluster of islands, navigators found only the open ocean. Alas, there was no new continent. In the 1600s, European explorers discovered New Zealand, but it was far too small to be considered a continent. British naval officer James Cook mapped much of the coastline of New Zealand and Australia and sailed further south than any human being in history at the time into frigid, uncharted territory replete with icebergs. He declared, quote, The southern hemisphere has been sufficiently explored and a final end put to the searching after of a southern continent. In 1820, an Estonian commander named Bellinghausen sailed into the frigid realm of the Southern Hemisphere and sighted a massive ice shelf. He was on a Russian ship, and he was likely the first person to lay eyes on Antarctica, or at the very least, on the icy shell that encased the continent. In the 1800s, seal hunting was a major industry that decimated seal populations on the islands of the Southern Hemisphere leaving many in the industry searching for new islands that could be used as hunting grounds. But seal hunters rarely ever shared the location of new hunting grounds with their rivals. In 1821, an American seal hunter named John Davis took his men ashore on an uncharted, rocky, desolate beach. There was snow and ice, but no plant life of any kind. In all likelihood, they had landed on the Antarctic Peninsula. 
Davis later wrote in his ship's log that he thought the land was part of a new continent. We can't say for sure, but in all probability, Davis and his men were the first humans in history to set foot on this uncharted body, what would later be known as the continent of Antarctica. But it wasn't until 1895 that the International Geographical Congress in London declared that Antarctica was, quote, the greatest piece of geographical exploration yet to be undertaken on Earth. Just two years later, John Scott, a lieutenant in the British Royal Navy, was frustrated by the fact that, in the absence of any major war, he wasn't likely to be promoted for some time, and might never receive a command of his own. On the streets of London, by pure happenstance, he bumped into the president of the Royal Geographical Society, who told him of a planned Antarctic expedition. Days later, Scott applied to command it. Scott traveled to Antarctica multiple times in the decade that followed. It would become known as the heroic age of Antarctic exploration, but would have one singular culminating event, the first time when humans would set foot on the South Pole and plant their nation's flag. The British had a vast empire that stretched across the world, and it was said that the sun never set on the British Empire, so naturally the South Pole was a prize that they coveted. Planting their flag there would serve as a symbol of British imperial strength. A British explorer named Shackleton had attempted to reach the South Pole, but he was forced to turn back 100 miles from his destination. Now, John Scott was convinced that this was just the sort of task that could make him immortal in the annals of history. Consider the challenge. The South Pole was hundreds of miles from the nearest building or outpost. Antarctica is a continent twice the size of Australia mostly covered by a sheet of ice over a mile thick. Penguins and seals live on the coast, but in the interior of the continent, there is no indigenous life, apart from sparse moss and lichens that grow on rock outcroppings during the summer. This region sees some of the lowest temperatures on Earth. In 1983, temperatures in Antarctica's interior dropped to 128 degrees below zero Fahrenheit or negative 89 degrees Celsius. It was no wonder that Shackleton had to turn back. The South Pole expedition Scott planned wouldn't solely be for the purposes of patriotism or political prowess, but for science as well. He collaborated with a meteorologist named Simpson, who was able to conduct remarkably accurate weather forecasts on the continent. Scott planned to use horses to pull supplies and equipment over the ice, and innovative new motorized sledges for transportation. But the final leg of the journey would involve Scott and his small team of men pulling their supplies on foot, a technique known as man-hauling. He said foregoing sled dogs and using man-hauling instead would make the conquest more nobly and splendidly won. Considering the great British history of exploration and the lessons learned from Shackleton's failures, it seemed almost inevitable that Scott would soon claim victory for the British Empire. But Scott wasn't the only person with his sights set on the South Pole. 
Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen also turned his gaze there. Amundsen had lived with Inuit tribes, the indigenous peoples of the Arctic, and he had learned a great deal about exploring harsh environments. Amundsen had recently dreamt of being the first person in history to reach the North Pole. When he failed, he realized that he still might be able to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. He could become the first person in history to reach the South Pole, if he could beat Scott there. Keeping his plans a secret until almost the last minute, Amundsen hoped his expedition would have a slight edge. But there was no way to know just when Scott would depart for the Pole. Amundsen arrived at the Bay of Wales on the Antarctic coast, 60 miles closer to the South Pole than Scott's outpost, but Amundsen's route to the Pole would be riskier. The great ice barrier before them might be unstable and collapse beneath their feet. One could say that Amundsen's expedition closely resembled the Soviet plans to visit the moon in the 1960s. It was a plan crafted under a veil of secrecy to plant a flag on the most distant frontier accessible to mankind, to gain national prestige by besting another great world power. Amundsen brought with him Greenland's sledge dogs, some of the strongest sledge dogs in the world. The expedition's clothing consisted of seal skins, reindeer skins, and wolf skins, in the same style as the Inuit peoples that Amundsen sought to emulate. All the men were expert cross-country skiers, working with boots that Amundsen spent two years designing and testing. The sledge dogs would haul all the food and supplies that they could manage, leaving supply depots marked with flags for their return journey. But it wouldn't be enough. Not only that, but scurvy was a common health problem for Antarctic explorers, one that could be mitigated by consuming fresh meat. But there were no animals in the interior of the continent for them to hunt. So Amundsen planned to slaughter the weakest sledge dogs on the team and boil their meat for his expedition. On the white, icy plains, a vast chain of mountains extended in front of them. Using two dog teams per sledge, they made an 11,000-foot climb in the course of four days. As they closed in on their destination on the other side, one of Amundsen's men thought he saw something moving on the horizon. Another set of dog sledges? Was it Scott? Amundsen was nervous, but none of the other men saw anything on the white horizon. Alas, it was only a mirage on a desert tundra. Knowing that they were only a day's journey from their destination, Amundsen lashed a Norwegian flag to two ski poles to ensure that it would be ready when the time came. The small group had sores on their face and were fighting frostbite, but they were giddy with excitement. Amundsen said that they felt like young boys on Christmas Eve, too excited to even sleep that night. In the 1960s, the Soviets planned to land one man on the moon. The Americans had plans to land two. In Amundsen's voyage, his expedition to the South Pole consisted of just five men. The following morning, on a brisk December day in 1911, they arrived at their destination on a flat, icy plateau. 
They saw no footprints, no flags, and no sign of Scott. God be thanked, was all Amundsen said. He insisted that no one man could plant the flag, but they would all grip the pole and plant it together. And they did just that. Beside the flagpole, he pitched a tent and left a signed letter inside, a record of their journey and their accomplishment, just in case he and his team perished on the trip back. But they all survived and sailed back to Australia to make their announcement to the world. Scott's journey, on the other hand, did not go as smoothly. His horses were poorly suited to the Antarctic conditions, and his motorized sledges broke down constantly. They were, after all, new cutting-edge technology. He arrived to bitter disappointment at the South Pole upon seeing the flag and encampment left by his rival. He had been beaten. On the return journey, the men fought temperatures of 30 to 50 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. It caused the snow to become icy and coarse, like grains of sand, creating friction on the sledges that the men were now dragging under their own strength. Scott's expedition collected a myriad of geological specimens during their journey, but the countless rocks made the sledges that much heavier to pull. Their scientific value made the rocks too crucial to simply dump out after such a journey. They were Scott's consolation prize. Without enough food, the men were literally starving to death from their own exertions, not to mention fighting symptoms of scurvy, since they were eating beef jerky rather than fresh meat or fresh fruit. In his diary, Scott wrote, quote, There is now a horrid element of doubt. We have had a terrible journey back. It is splendid, however, to pass with such companions as I have. The team finally died when they faced a blizzard that permanently halted their journey. Back in England, Scott was considered a martyr who undertook a noble quest. Patriotic British subjects said that Norwegian explorer Amundsen was barbaric for slaughtering innocent dogs on the journey and for keeping his plans secret until the last minute. Most unsportsmanlike. A wooden cross still stands in Antarctica as a memorial to Scott's expedition, with the words of poet Alfred Tennyson, to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. Today, the permanent outpost at the South Pole is called the Amundsen-Scott Station. Amundsen himself famously said, quote, This is the greatest factor, the way in which the expedition is equipped, the way in which every difficulty is foreseen, and precautions taken for meeting or avoiding it. Victory awaits him who has everything in order. Luck, people call it. Defeat is certain for him who has neglected to take the necessary precautions in time. This is what people call bad luck. Just 50 years after Amundsen planted his flag on the last unexplored frontier of the Earth, the first human being ventured into space. Less than a decade after that, the first human beings would set out for the moon. In 1968, the crew of Apollo 8 orbited the moon 
with astronaut Frank Borman as the mission commander. It was the first time any human beings in history had left Earth orbit, and they all returned safely to Earth a few days later. Another astronaut named Neil Armstrong had served as the backup commander for Apollo 8. His superiors assured him that very soon he might get the chance to be the commander of a prime crew on his own Apollo mission. But even as 1968 came to a close, it was very much uncertain just who would be first to attempt a moon landing. The mission plan of each Apollo flight was dictated by the successes or failures of each previous Apollo flight. On a seemingly mundane day in 1969, Armstrong was sitting in his office, and his phone began to ring. When he picked it up, a voice on the other end asked him if he and his crew would be ready to attempt a lunar landing in July. That didn't leave much time. There were so many unknowns that Armstrong later admitted he thought that they had just a 50-50 chance of landing successfully on the moon. Apollo 11 would be the first crew in history to attempt such a landing. But no one, including Armstrong, knew if they would succeed. At least in his own mind, Armstrong had to admit it would have been nice to have an extra month or two to prepare. No, no. He banished the thought. We'll be ready to go in July, he said, then hung up the phone. Born in Ohio, as a toddler, Armstrong was captivated by the sights and sounds of biplanes at the local Cleveland air races. By the time he was old enough to speak, he was determined to become an airplane pilot. Armstrong's classmates in school described him as a quiet young man, but on the rare occasion that he did speak, all of the other kids listened. When he spoke, it seemed as though he always knew just what to say. As a teenager, he got his pilot's license before he even learned to drive a car. Armstrong eventually went into the United States Navy during the Korean War. At 21 years old, he flew one of the earliest American jet fighter aircraft ever built. In 1951, while he was inside his fighter jet, descending rapidly in a low bombing run over North Korea, he came under enemy fire. The ground below was a maze of twisted metal poles and anti-aircraft cables. He struck one, instantly slicing off several feet of his right wing. With his arm tightly gripping the joystick, he knew he wouldn't be able to make it back to the aircraft carrier. Just before he lost control of the aircraft, he ejected. But Armstrong survived, going on to fly multiple other combat missions during the Korean War. After the war, he earned a bachelor's degree in aeronautical engineering. He would go on to become a test pilot, flying the X-15, the fastest aircraft in the world, which flew so close to the edge of space, its pilots were granted astronaut wings. Armstrong had the honor of making the X-15's longest flight, crossing 180 miles in just over 10 minutes. On Armstrong's Gemini spaceflight, in orbit around the Earth, a malfunction on his capsule caused the craft to spin out of control at a dizzying one revolution per second, nearly causing him to black out. He initiated an emergency re-entry procedure, likely saving his own life and that of his fellow astronaut, Dave Scott. 
Somehow, Armstrong always managed to remain calm under pressure. After all, his Gemini mission wasn't his first brush with death. Astronaut Buzz Aldrin was also assigned to Apollo 11. He would function as a sort of co-pilot to Neil Armstrong, working in a support capacity while Armstrong piloted the lunar module, or LEM, down to the surface. Aldrin's name was the same name as his father's. But whether by fate or coincidence, prior to getting married, his mother's maiden name had been Marion Moon. A West Point graduate, Buzz Aldrin also saw combat as a fighter pilot during the Korean War. He went on to earn a doctorate of science in astronautics from MIT. His doctoral thesis was on spacecraft rendezvous, which would be a crucial part of the Apollo 11 mission. Life magazine called Aldrin the best scientific mind in space. Also a Project Gemini veteran, those who knew Aldrin recalled that he couldn't seem to leave his work at the office. He was often seen at parties, with a glass of whiskey in his hand, spouting off seemingly endless diatribes about the technical details of orbital mechanics and spacecraft rendezvous and docking maneuvers, leaving his fellow partygoers yawning and tapping their feet impatiently. His monologue sometimes went on for hours. Aldrin's nickname, among his fellow astronauts, was Dr. Rendezvous. During a press conference before the Apollo 11 mission, a reporter asked which of the two men would be the first to set foot on the surface of the moon, assuming that they landed successfully. The NASA Director of Flight Crew Operations responded that the decision hadn't been made yet. During Project Gemini, the mission commander stayed on board while his fellow astronaut conducted a spacewalk, and there was some evidence that Apollo 11 might follow suit with Armstrong exiting the LEM only after Aldrin had stepped out onto the surface. While Aldrin knew that Armstrong was an extremely skilled pilot, he worried that perhaps Armstrong wouldn't give the proper attention to the historic act of taking the first steps on the moon. So Aldrin lobbied hard to be the first, even pressuring a fellow astronaut who was in charge of mission planning to make a decisive ruling on the matter. Even Aldrin's own father lobbied hard for his son to be first. Aldrin's father was a U.S. Army veteran who had been an aviator in both World War I and World War II, and he was a well-connected man with friends in high places. But the introverted Aldrin was not particularly popular among his fellow astronauts. While they respected his brilliant scientific mind, he did not make friends easily. Aldrin was a loner, in every sense of the word. Even Armstrong, who trained for endless hours in the LEM simulator with Aldrin, never seemed to become good friends with him. Armstrong's quiet confidence and humble attitude made him seem like a far more prudent choice to become the first man to walk on the moon. It was said that Armstrong was closer to the hatch inside the cramped space vehicle, and it would be too difficult for Aldrin to squeeze past Armstrong to exit first. Furthermore, it was an old American Navy tradition for a ship's commander to be the first to step off a naval vessel during shore leave or while in port. Science journalist Andrew Chaikin states that NASA reasoned that landing on the moon 
was akin to going ashore in port. In contrast, Project Gemini's commanders had stayed on board their spacecraft because being in low Earth orbit more closely resembled being out at sea. In April of 1969, the announcement was made. If a successful landing were made, Armstrong would exit the LEM first. Buzz Aldrin's wife would later say that he was devastated by this decision, but he later accepted it. The third and often forgotten member of the Apollo 11 crew was a man named Michael Collins. He would remain in the command module capsule while Armstrong and Aldrin descended to the surface of the moon. Collins was the son of a U.S. Army Major General and also a West Point graduate. Both Michael Collins and Buzz Aldrin played a key role when they traveled into space on Project Gemini. Spacewalks, also known as extravehicular activity, or EVA, were not well understood in the 1960s, and they were a dangerous endeavor. American astronauts were unaware that the first Soviet cosmonaut to float out in space nearly died of heat exhaustion and decompression sickness trying to return to his craft. Gemini astronaut Gene Cernan conducted America's second spacewalk and described trying to hold on to the tether that connected him to his spacecraft to be like wrestling with an octopus. The thick fabric of his spacesuit, when inflated, made simply bending his arms a difficult maneuver. He said it was like trying to move inside of a rusty suit of armor. Cernan's heart rate skyrocketed, and the visor of his helmet fogged over as he struggled to perform even basic tasks. Clearly something had to change if human beings were going to walk safely on the surface of the moon. Collins was able to shed new light on the exercise of EVA during his own Gemini spacewalk. Buzz Aldrin made greater strides still. Prior to Aldrin's Gemini spaceflight, he had transformed the training process for his own EVA, practicing in a tank of water to simulate weightlessness. His spacewalk was nearly flawless. If Armstrong or Aldrin crashed on the surface, or if the ascent engine of their LEM failed to ignite, Collins would have the unenviable task of being the sole member of the crew to return to Earth. He trained for just such a scenario, and it always weighed heavily on his mind. Collins once said, quote, If they fail to rise from the surface, or crash into it, I am not going to commit suicide. I am coming home forthwith, but I will be a marked man for life, and I know it. Each member of the Apollo 11 crew already had an impressive record and were accomplished astronauts in their own right, but Apollo 11 would be their greatest challenge yet. None of them were particularly close friends. In fact, they were once described as three amiable strangers. Among reporters, there was much speculation about what, if anything, Armstrong would say or do to mark the occasion, assuming he landed successfully on the moon. But Armstrong made no comment about it to his fellow astronauts, let alone to the press. On a late summer evening in 1969, Armstrong was visiting his younger brother, Dean. He asked his younger brother if he might like to go down to the basement to play a round of the board game Risk. Ironically, 
Risk was a game of strategic conquest for world domination, played out on a map of the earth. But Armstrong was now vying for the conquest of the heavenly body. At one point during the course of the casual board game, as the men moved their plastic pieces across the continents, Armstrong passed a folded piece of paper to his younger brother. Written in Armstrong's handwriting were the following words. That's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. What do you think of that? Armstrong asked. Fabulous, his brother said. I thought you might like that, but I wanted you to read it, though, he said. In the Soviet Union, their space program continued under a cover of absolute secrecy. Well, almost absolute secrecy. That summer, cosmonaut Alexei Leonov, the man who conducted the first spacewalk, or EVA, was speaking to some Japanese reporters. Among Soviet cosmonauts, there was speculation that he might be selected to be the first man to land on the moon. He told the reporters that the Soviet Union was preparing both manned and unmanned lunar spacecraft and that they would be ready very soon. Soviet political leaders were furious with his indiscretion. Publicly, they had never acknowledged any lunar landing program. NASA began to grow nervous once again. Just how close were the Soviets? In July, just a few weeks before Apollo 11's launch, a massive N-1 rocket, over 300 feet tall, was rolled into place on a launch pad in Kazakhstan and prepared for launch in the dead of night. There were no astronauts sitting atop the rocket, but to this day, just what its payload might have been remains a mystery. The official story was that the N-1 was launching a unmanned probe but former intelligence analyst Peter James claims that they were launching a vehicle into space that could be used for a manned mission to the moon. The N-1 was simply too new and too dangerous for astronauts to ride it into space, but it could place an enormous payload in orbit around the Earth, or beyond. If it succeeded, a smaller Soyuz spacecraft could be launched separately with astronauts inside, they could theoretically transfer to the other craft and set out for the moon. That day, the mighty rocket roared to life. But the N-1 launch ended in disaster. Fully fueled, the massive rocket toppled over onto the launch pad, resulting in an explosion that was the equivalent of an atomic bomb blast. In the dead of night, the fireball was visible for 20 miles away from the launch site. We may never know just what the Soviets were trying to launch into outer space, or just how different history would have turned out if they had succeeded. But weeks later, Apollo 11 launched successfully on a Saturn V rocket. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one. Zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Here we got a roll program. Much like John Scott's Antarctic expedition, 
the Apollo 11 crew weren't merely going to their destination to plant a flag, but to conduct real science. And they were just as well equipped as Amundsen's expedition. Well, almost. Like Scott with his motorized sledges, the Apollo 11 crew were about to find out that using new or experimental technology on a remote frontier had its drawbacks. Neil Armstrong had flown many experimental aircraft in his life, and even orbited the Earth before, but the LEM would be an entirely new experience for the daring test pilot. The LEM had been assembled in a hurry to be ready by the end of the decade, and had seen numerous delays. No one was sure if it would work the way it was supposed to. Slightly larger than two telephone booths, it was a disposable vehicle meant only to land and take off from the moon. Afterwards, it would be discarded. It was the separate command module that the astronauts would use to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere after a trip home. Since the moon had virtually no atmosphere, the LEM needed no heat shield, no parachutes, no aerodynamic features of any kind, just four spidery legs to support it. It looked flimsy in its appearance. There were parts of the spacecraft's hull that were no thicker than an aluminum soda can. But even a soda can can contain pressures of 30 pounds per square inch in a carbonated beverage. With the LEM pressurized in the vacuum of space, it would only need to contain 5 pounds of pressure per square inch. And anyway, the astronauts would fly the craft with their spacesuits on, just to be safe. Even so, there were indeed areas of the LEM so fragile that they could be pierced with a pocket knife, or even a screwdriver. The fuel tanks in the descent engine, used to slow the craft as it approached the surface, were wrapped in what looked like golden tinfoil. It was a thermal control blanket, made mostly of mylar film, designed to reflect the intense heat of the sun to prevent the rocket engine underneath from overheating. The rocket engine inside weighed less than the engine of an average American automobile. The original LEM had two seats for the astronauts, but the seats weighed too much, so they were removed. Since the moon had less than one-fourth of the gravity of the Earth, the astronauts could probably land the LEM while standing up inside of it. Armstrong knew that just a few months prior, an earlier crew of astronauts had made their flight around the moon in the LEM and nearly died. The Apollo 10 mission's purpose had been to test the LEM in lunar orbit, a sort of dress rehearsal for a landing that might follow on a later mission. The crew found that their landing radar had been programmed improperly, and in testing the LEM's engine in lunar orbit, a guidance switch had been flipped in the wrong direction. When the engine fired, it sent the LEM tumbling end over end, prompting the two astronauts inside to sputter profanity over the radio. Apollo 10 astronaut Tom Stafford was a skilled test pilot and managed to stabilize the vehicle. If the craft had remained spinning for just a few more seconds, it would have crashed below on the barren surface of the moon. It was now July 20th, 1969, and Apollo 11 had just gone into orbit around the moon. Armstrong and Aldrin undocked from the command module. Astronaut Michael Collins said that he was sweating like a nervous bride. Slowly, he watched as the LEM descended to the surface. 
looking smaller and smaller. Immediately, ground controllers in Houston, Texas, experienced difficulty communicating with the LEM, as static crackled on the other end. All around the world, hundreds of millions of TV viewers saw grainy, black-and-white images of the lunar surface from a camera mounted on the side. Craters on the pale white surface below slowly came into view. On the LEM, their computer now began sending out alarms. With the data from landing radar and other systems, the computer was overloaded. Many at Mission Control were perplexed by the alarms, but one 24-year-old computer engineer had encountered them in simulations before. He gave the Eagle permission to continue the landing. As the LEM pitched over, an ominous sight revealed itself through the portholes of the falling spacecraft. Armstrong now got his first look at the lunar surface, a massive field of truck-sized boulders and jagged rocks. And up ahead, a deep crater the size of a football field. The LEM could only land on stable, flat ground. Unable to rely on the guidance computer or the landing radar, Armstrong grabbed the joystick and took manual control. He might be able to fly onwards to a safer landing site was now their only option. But it would take time, and it would be the most inefficient use of their dwindling fuel supply. When they reached two minutes of fuel remaining, the ground controller retrieved a stopwatch, and everyone fell silent. They would now simply be calling out the amount of fuel that remained. There was nothing more that they could tell Armstrong that he didn't already know. Even Aldrin, remained silent in the LEM, calling out the seconds of fuel only so as not to break Neil Armstrong's intense focus. They were flying for their lives now, facing the prospect of an abort or a crash. They had now flown four miles past their planned landing site. 60 seconds, Aldrin called out. They were drifting close to the dead man's curve. The flight guidance officer later said, quote, never want to go under the dead man's curve. It's an altitude where you just don't have enough time to do an abort before you crash. Essentially, you're a dead man. With less than a minute of fuel remaining, they were still over a hundred feet up, descending above the jagged, rocky surface of the moon. Thirty seconds, Aldrin called out. Armstrong was now squinting against low visibility conditions as the descent engine blew dust all around them. Only the tops of jagged boulders were visible. But it looked as though they might be approaching a clearing. The footpads of the LEM each had wires extending from them. If any one of them touched the surface, the contact light would come on in the cockpit. Aldrin looked down nervously, anxiously awaiting the light on the instrument panel. Finally, the blue light flickered on. Contact light. Okay, engine stop. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Tranquility. We copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Tranquility Base was a term that neither Armstrong nor Aldrin had ever used prior to that. 
It was to be the human race's first outpost on another world, the site of the first exploration of the moon, a name that the two men agreed upon just days before the Apollo 11 launch. All future lunar maps would list the location in Latin, Statio Tranquillitatis. Space program historian Paul Shalito pointed out that Armstrong's family name comes from a Celtic clan who told a legend about a warrior that displayed a feat of heroism in war using just one of his arms. An interesting fact, considering that Armstrong had to take manual control of the LEM to steer it to the surface. Winning a critical competition in the Cold War. Armstrong's family clan motto was Invictus Mineo. I remain unvanquished. Computer scientist Margaret Hamilton had to design the onboard flight software for the Apollo program, crucial to getting to the surface of the moon. Women working at specialized looms wove a unique tapestry, not of threads or cloth, but of wires. Hamilton literally coined the term software engineering, and she helped usher in the age of microprocessors. The tiny computers in our smartphones today exist because of Project Apollo. Microchips are now everywhere in the 21st century, but half a century ago, even IBM decided not to use them in their company computers. They were too new and far too risky. One reason the Soviets never managed to land men on the moon was that they weren't able to make the same cutting-edge advancements in constructing tiny, lightweight computers to take them along on the journey. They had their own lander, but they didn't have the computers of Apollo. One might think that, with the constant alarms during the landing, this wasn't Margaret Hamilton's finest hour. But she later pointed out just how important her contribution had been in the following words. To blame the computer for the Apollo 11 problems is like blaming the person who spots a fire and calls the fire department. The software's action in this case was to eliminate lower-priority tasks and reestablish the more important ones. The computer, rather than almost forcing an abort, prevented an abort. Armstrong and Aldrin had made it. After days of hurtling through the void of outer space, they were suddenly still, on firm, solid ground, on a cosmic island in outer space, more than 240,000 miles from home. Outside of their tidy windows, a vast landscape extended before them, awash in sunlight, but with a jet-black sky. The powdery lunar soil looked almost like freshly fallen snow, totally untouched. Now, many take for granted the fact that human beings have personally explored the moon, but many people are unaware, even today, of just what a strange world it is how many mysteries it still holds. TLP, or transient lunar phenomenon, have been observed on the moon for centuries. They consist of strange, bright, multicolored lights seen on the moon's surface. These lights are bright enough to be seen with telescopes here on Earth, and there are literally hundreds of recorded sightings. William Herschel, the astronomer who discovered the planet Uranus saw multiple lights on the moon during a lunar eclipse in the 1700s. 
In the winter of 1821, a light inside the crater Aristarchus was observed by telescopes on Earth two nights in a row. In the 20th century, Russian astronomers have also recorded multiple strange lights coming from Aristarchus. Even Apollo astronauts have seen the lights. Apollo 16's mission observed transient lunar phenomenon from lunar orbit. And then, just a few months later, Apollo 17 sighted lights in precisely the same region where Apollo 16 had reported them. Some have suggested that the flashes of light are meteors impacting the moon, but there's almost no chance of multiple meteors impacting in exactly the same place a few months apart. Others have suggested that they might be volcanoes, but the moon isn't volcanically active, at least not that we know of. The truth is, even today, nobody knows just what these lights are. Lunar geologist Farouk Galbaz trained the Apollo astronauts and said this about lunar phenomena. Quote, The one thing I can't explain that I do not know about are these enormous flashes of light. There is no question about it. They are very tremendous things, not natural. With a rest period scheduled before their moonwalk, Buzz Aldrin had something deeply personal planned to recognize the historic event. On the radio back at Mission Control in Houston, they heard Aldrin inviting those listening in to take a moment of silence to contemplate the event itself. Aldrin then slowly poured a vial of wine into a tiny chalice. His local church had given him a small communion kit to take with him. In the low gravity, the liquid slowly and gracefully curled around the glass, as if moving in slow motion. He then read a Bible verse on a handwritten card, the words of Jesus of Nazareth. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit, for you can do nothing without me. Drinking the wine, Aldrin then ate a small wafer. He said he simply couldn't think of any better way to acknowledge their successful landing than by giving thanks to God. Not unlike the words of Ruald Amundsen half a century prior on the polar plateau of Antarctica. Armstrong and Aldrin then prepared for their EVA. No one had ever set foot on the moon before, and NASA couldn't be sure just how dangerous walking on its surface might be. Temperatures on the moon vary drastically. In sunlight, it can be as hot as 200 degrees Celsius, or over 300 degrees Fahrenheit. The Apollo 11 crew deliberately landed at lunar sunrise in the hopes that the surface would not be retaining as much heat as it usually did. For safety, Armstrong and Aldrin would limit their time walking on the surface to about two hours assuming that they could comfortably walk on the surface for that long. Their white spacesuits were designed to reflect as much heat as possible, and their boots were thickly insulated like oven mitts. Underneath their thick spacesuits, the astronauts wore long underwear covered in tubes. Cool water would be circulated throughout the tubes to keep their body temperature from rising too high. If they ventured to any dark shadows, 
or inside any craters, their suits would rapidly cool down. One astronaut on a later mission even got frostbite through his spacesuit gloves on one occasion while he was in shadow for too long. Armstrong and Aldrin would have to remain in sunlight. The entire suit and the biopacks with their oxygen weighed 180 pounds on Earth, but in the low gravity of the moon, the suits weighed only 30 pounds. Armstrong found it was a tight squeeze maneuvering through the open hatch in his spacesuit, but he managed to get out. The LEM was designed to drop a few feet under the surface after its engine shut off. Its flimsy legs were designed to compress upon impact, but Armstrong had set it down so gently its legs hadn't compressed, and it was a few feet higher off the surface than the men had anticipated. After carefully climbing down the ladder, Armstrong hopped back up to ensure that he would be able to get back into the space vehicle. Then, setting his boot in the lunar soil, Armstrong uttered his famous words. He then quickly took a contingency soil sample, stuffing it into his pocket. If there were an emergency, at least they wouldn't return empty-handed. A few minutes later, Aldrin emerged, climbing down onto the surface. Then, much like a Mudson had done at the Earth's south pole, Aldrin planted a flag in the soil. With no air or wind on the moon, a metal bar supported the fabric of the American flag. The surface soil was hard, though, and Aldrin could only force the flagpole down a few inches. Secretly, he worried that the flag might topple over in front of an Apollo 11 television camera, but the flag remained upright. President Richard Nixon was anxious to use the historic event for his own political purposes. He had planned a lengthy, patriotic speech. Afterwards, America's national anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner, would be played as astronauts stood beside the American flag. At the time, Apollo 8 astronaut Frank Borman was an advisor to Richard Nixon and suggested that, instead, he should keep his remarks brief and skip the national anthem. The astronauts didn't have much time on the lunar surface, and they would essentially be wasting much of it literally standing around if they followed President Nixon's political itinerary. The president reluctantly agreed, offering just a few brief remarks instead. Looking at the strange, desolate, alien landscape, Armstrong said, quote, It has a stark beauty all of its own. It's much like the high desert of the United States. It's different, but it's very pretty out here. Collins orbited the moon patiently awaiting the return of his fellow astronauts. Each time his command module passed behind the dark side of the moon, he was cut off from communication not only with the Earth, but with Armstrong and Aldrin also, totally and utterly alone. There were some in the media who dubbed him the loneliest man in the universe. But he later said he didn't feel lonely in the solitude of the capsule. As he passed behind the dark side of the moon, he said this, quote, I feel awareness, anticipation, satisfaction, confidence, almost exaltation. I like the feeling. Outside my window, I can see stars, and that is all. Where I know the moon to be, there is simply a black void. 
For most of their time on the surface, Armstrong and Aldrin remained in view of the TV camera, staying close to the LEM. But now, Armstrong wandered off, venturing a few hundred feet away, taking long strides in the low gravity towards Little West Crater, a crater with a diameter of about 80 feet. Snapping a few photos for geologists back on Earth, he hoped to catch an image of exposed lunar bedrock. By the end of their EVA, the astronauts gathered nearly 50 pounds of rock and soil samples. Aldrin used a small hammer to force tubes into the soil to take some core samples. But in the low gravity, the lighter weight of the hammer wasn't as effective as it was on Earth. Much like John Scott's expedition to Antarctica, geological samples would be a vital prize to return with, invaluable to scientists on Earth. The first rocks ever brought back from another world. We would find new minerals on the moon that had never been seen on Earth before. It was found that the youngest moon rocks were about the same age as the oldest rocks on Earth. One rock, collected on a later mission, turned out to be 4.5 billion years old. It was a chunk of the moon's original crust. The composition of these rocks showed astronomers that the moon was not formed from a chunk of the Earth, but likely from a planetary body that collided with the Earth billions of years ago and formed into the moon afterwards. The rich and diverse sampling of moon rocks from the Apollo missions gave planetary scientists a primer for understanding not just the moon, but a standard for understanding, comparing, and contrasting every planet and moon in our solar system. Before climbing back into the LEM, Armstrong and Aldrin left an Apollo 1 patch on the surface with the names of Grissom, White, and Chaffee, the astronauts who perished in the disastrous capsule fire during training. With no wind, rain, or erosion on the moon, Armstrong and Aldrin's footprints, the flag, and the Apollo 1 patch would remain frozen in time for thousands of years. One astrophysicist warned that the lunar soil had been isolated from oxygen for so long that when the astronauts pressurized the LEM's cabin, it might ignite like gunpowder. Once the two men climbed inside, sealing the hatch, they both watched anxiously. But there was no reaction. They were safe. The dusty soil on their suits smelled like ashes and wet gunpowder. They soon found their noses were stuffed up and their throats slightly irritated by the dust. If humanity ever had a permanent base on the moon, the problem of dust would need to be remedied. But the astronauts still faced far more serious dangers. No one had ever ignited a LEM ascent engine on the surface of the moon before. The frigid temperatures of lunar shadow might have caused the fuel lines to freeze. The blinding sunlight on the other side of the craft might cause the engines to overheat or even explode upon launch. On the command module, alone in orbit around the moon, Collins knew all these dangers, and he was still fighting his anxiety. Listening to the landing had been nail-biting enough. He wrote in a small journal, quote, My secret terror for the last six months 
has been leaving them on the moon and returning to Earth alone. Now, I am within minutes of finding out the truth of the matter. President Nixon's speechwriter even prepared remarks that could be made in the event that Armstrong and Aldrin died or were stranded on the surface of the moon. In that case, a clergyman would offer a simple ceremony similar to the one used for burial at sea. Then, communications with the Lamb would be cut off. After a brief rest period, Houston Mission Control awoke Armstrong and Aldrin and instructed them to prepare for liftoff. But the two men suddenly noticed something that made their hearts sink. The circuit breaker that would arm the descent engine for liftoff was damaged. In their bulky spacesuits, one of them must have accidentally bumped into it, snapping off the switch that was needed to arm the engine. It was a circuit, so using their fingers or a metal tool to activate it could electrocute them. If a solution couldn't be found, they would be stranded, condemned to die in the lem, slowly running out of oxygen. Aldrin did have a felt-tip pen in his pocket. It might just work. Jamming it into the circuit breaker, he thrust the pen forward. Suddenly, they rocketed upwards, hurtling into the black skies with the engine burning beneath them. Aldrin glanced out the window just long enough to see their American flag blown over in the engine's blast. Michael Collins had spent roughly a day in orbit around the moon. Now, he watched the tiny planet Earth rising above the rocky, colorless surface of the moon. The tiny, blue, cloud-covered sphere wasn't just his home. It was the home of all of the hundreds of thousands of scientists and engineers that worked to place him where he was. Collins designed the Apollo 11 mission patch with none of the astronauts' names on it. It was humanity's collective achievement, not an achievement of three men. An eagle that adorned the patch clutched an olive branch in its talons, a symbol that they had come to the moon in peace. Charles Lindbergh, the first American to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean, spoke highly of Collins during the mission. He said that Collins played a profound role on Apollo 11, and in the process, experienced a solitude previously unknown to mankind. Collins watched as a tiny dot appeared above the lunar surface, his two friends, Armstrong and Aldrin. As he maneuvered forward to dock with them, he snapped a picture of the Lem with the Earth in the background. In that moment, he realized every human being in the universe lay within the frame of that photo, except for himself. Collins never walked on the moon, but he was grateful to have taken part in the Apollo 11 mission, to have done his job and done it well, and to return with his fellow crew members beside him. They were safe and sound, despite being covered with smelly dust. Armstrong and Aldrin struggled with the burden of their celebrity status as the first men to land on the moon. The quiet Armstrong shunned interviews and public appearances. Aldrin later fought to overcome alcoholism and depression. Collins had no such troubles. When asked about the historic mission, years later, Collins said, quote, We came along at exactly the right time, 
We survived hazardous careers and were successful in them. In my own case, at least, it was 10% shrewd planning and 90% blind luck. Put lucky on my tombstone. Just a few days later, on July 24, 1969, all three lucky men re-entered the Earth's atmosphere safely in their command module capsule, deployed their parachutes, and splashed down in the Pacific Ocean. Michael Collins was recently asked what his favorite part of the Apollo 11 voyage to the moon was. His response? Seeing the parachutes open. But the final portion of their mission would be the most trying for the three men's patience. No one was sure whether the moon or its rocks and dust might contain extraterrestrial microbes. Any virus or bacteria that human beings had no immunity to could potentially decimate or even wipe out the human race. Such a scenario is far from hypothetical. In 1492, European settlers visited a figurative new world. Historian Alfred Crosby dubbed the events that transpired after the settling of North America as the Columbian Exchange, a time when two continents, cut off for millennia from each other, saw a sudden huge influx and exchange of foreign plants, animals, and peoples. It is the ultimate example in human history of what transpires when two civilizations, two metaphorical worlds, make contact with each other. European settlers eventually clashed violently with the indigenous Native American tribes, but the most dangerous and lethal visitors to the New World were not European colonists, but microorganisms. Smallpox, malaria, influenza, measles, and whooping cough, just to name a few. Smallpox was likely the most deadly, though, sometimes wiping out entire Native American tribes. The first settlers and explorers had no idea that they had brought these invisible visitors along, and over a million Native Americans died as a result. The Extraterrestrial Exposure Law was a set of regulations put in place by NASA to prevent just such a scenario, to accept responsibility and authority to guard Earth against harmful contamination resulting from any person, spacecraft, or instruments returning after a landing on a celestial body. Such regulations might one day be needed if human beings returned to Earth from voyages to Mars, or any of the worlds in the solar system for that matter. Drifting in the Pacific Ocean before leaving their command module spacecraft, the Apollo 11 crew wiped down the inside of the craft with a powerful antiseptic. Then, they changed into special biological isolation garments that covered every inch of their bodies. Doctors on Earth agreed that if the astronauts were infected, they would show visible symptoms of infection within 21 days, so they were kept in an isolation chamber for 21 days, sealed off from the outside world, able to see their friends and family, but only through a thick pane of plate glass. Luckily, the moon turned out to be sterile, at least as far as we know. The astronauts brought back no alien microorganisms. The Soviet space program never got their enormous, complex, and one rocket to work successfully. The project was abandoned, and the Soviet Union itself collapsed in 1991. 
but a few years after that, a visiting group of American rocket scientists was shown a mysterious warehouse where they beheld what they described as a forest of engines. The N1 rocket engines that Soviet engineer Kuznetsov had secretly saved for decades against the orders of his superiors. Officially, the Soviet government said that there was no race to the moon. The Soviets claimed that they never had any intention of wasting money on such a frivolity. Western engineers were astonished when they tested the N1 rocket's NK-33 engines and found that their closed-cycle system worked beautifully. NASA Administrator George Muller said that the engines were so efficient that they were better than anything on Earth at the time of their discovery. And even then, the engines were decades old. Half a century after the first moon landing, America's current president has announced plans to land astronauts on the moon again by 2024. The crew might include the first woman to set foot on the moon. If successful, this new program will be named after Apollo's twin sister in Greek mythology, Artemis. But the program will likely require Congress to agree to additional funding of over $1 billion as a sort of down payment on the program. The future of Artemis is altogether uncertain, and more than likely, a manned moon landing will happen in 2028, if it happens at all. Other private companies have been dreaming up their own plans for lunar exploration, but no one has set foot on the moon since 1972, and space travel remains challenging, complex, and above all, expensive. Elon Musk announced plans to send astronauts to fly past the moon in 2018, but it never came to fruition. Now, Musk says a mission around the moon will happen in the 2020s. NASA's Constellation program wanted to land astronauts on the moon by the year 2020, but it didn't receive enough funding and was later abandoned. Never has NASA's budget been as high as it was in the 1960s, at the peak of the space race, and human space travel has been pursued only in low Earth orbit since the end of the Apollo program. Werner von Braun himself admitted that during the decade of the 1960s, with the political divisions of the Vietnam War and the Civil Rights Movement, America had gone from a visionary society to an introspective society, one less enthralled by the idea of space exploration. There was little interest in human expeditions to Mars. Today, there is really no way of knowing precisely how and when we will return to the moon, if we return at all. But how will these historic Apollo sites on the moon be preserved? In the coming years, what's to stop space tourists from smudging or trampling over Armstrong and Aldrin's footprints in the lunar dust? or going treasure hunting to find some invaluable piece of historic equipment left on the surface by astronauts in the past? After all, such a piece of equipment could be sold for millions here on Earth. The 1967 Outer Space Treaty was signed by over a hundred nations, including the United States. It clearly says that no one nation can own any part of outer space, including the moon. The treaty describes outer space as the common heritage of mankind. 
the National Park Service in the United States helps to preserve historic sites, but it admits that it has no jurisdiction on the moon. Indeed, any efforts to make the Apollo landing sites off-limits to foreign countries might be seen as a celestial land grab. Under international laws and treaties, any nation that sends craft or objects into outer space retains ownership of those crafts and objects. But despite our American flags, the United States does not own any of the landing sites themselves. An international nonprofit organization called For All Moonkind is currently pushing the United Nations to set some clear rules regarding the preservation of the Apollo landing sites, with particular attention given to Apollo 11's landing site. But as of yet, there are no laws stopping anyone from visiting the sites. And even if there were, there are no police officers in outer space to enforce such laws. What more can we say about the Apollo 11 mission that has not already been said? According to historian Arthur Schlesinger, the moon landing was the single most significant human achievement of the 20th century, because in 500 years' time, whatever else we accomplished in the 20th century, the first landing on another celestial body will still clearly stand out. Some people in the 1960s, as well as some people today, see the Apollo program as a gratuitous, superfluous waste of taxpayer money. By the mid-1960s, the endeavor of landing men on the moon had comprised nearly 5% of the entire federal budget. Hundreds of billions of dollars, if adjusted for inflation. With war, poverty, disease, and inequality, with so many problems right here on Earth, how could anyone justify spending money on space? In the year 1970, a few song lyrics by African-American artist Gil Scott Heron summed up this attitude rather well. Quote, I can't pay no doctor bill, but Whitey's on the moon. So what was the point of it all? Why does it even matter? Billions of dollars were spent during the space race, and human lives were lost in the process. So what was its value? What has humanity purchased for such a great price? Perhaps we should answer that question with another question. What is the value of the microprocessor to humanity? Microprocessors came about as a direct result of the race to the moon. What is the value of magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, to modern medicine? It came about with the advent of digital image processing used by NASA to get higher-resolution photographs in preparation for a landing on the moon that would follow. What are the value of the smoke detectors we use in our homes? Those only came about as a direct result of the Apollo 1 capsule fire. For any one of these technological advances, is there anyone among us who could come up with an estimate of exactly what these tools are worth to humanity, in money, or in human lives? The answer might very well be that they are priceless. More priceless than the geologically valuable rocks that John Scott and his men painstakingly dragged across the Antarctic tundra when they were literally starving to death. What is the value of sending human beings to land on Mars? Well, that remains to be seen. But the exploration of other worlds 
while it often comes at a high price, is indeed worth it. Today, more than ever, we must all aspire to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. A German astronomer named Kepler became famous in the annals of history for deducing the motions of the planets around the sun centuries ago. In speaking of the value of science, he said the following words, quote, We do not ask what hope of gain makes a little bird warble, since we know that it takes delight in singing, because it is for that very singing that the bird was made. So there is no need to ask why the human mind undertakes such toil in seeking out the secrets of the heavens. And just as other animals in the human body are sustained by food and drink, so the very spirit of man, which is something distinct from man, is nourished, is increased, and in a sense grows up on this diet of knowledge, and is more like the dead than the living if it is touched by no desire for these things. Thank you.